In the, in the culture of God's word managing a nation, managing a culture, if someone commits adultery, that person ceases to exist. They're not there anymore. So I'll ask you, Mark, if, if someone's spouse is dead, are they free to remarry? It's a lot less difficult to deal with because, you know, Bill, who got caught cheating, has been taken outside the city gates and stoned. Now, I'm not saying that's, that's the, the righteous response today to a guy who uh, is engaged in adultery, but that was what happened in Israel. Hi, I'm Steve. For nearly 30 years, I've been a pastor and disciple maker, and what I really love doing is helping guys be better followers of Christ and better leaders at home. I'm Mark, a certified financial planner with an MBA and an Ivy League degree who wants to make sure you're making the smartest money decisions possible. And this is Abraham's Wallet. Join us weekly and create a culture in your family of multi-generational prosperity, spiritually, relationally, physically, intellectually, and financially. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. lot to talk about today, Mark. I know, and it makes me sad that we don't have a, our usual 10 minutes for for small talk, but we'll make do with what we have. You just got back from the motherland, right? Yes, I'll squeeze in a little bit of small talk about the state of Texas, uh, where I did a whirlwind day that was unplanned to me. Uh, it was unplanned because the reason I went was for a funeral. Uh, they, they don't often plan those out too far in advance. Um, however, it was serendipitous in a couple of ways. One is that it was the funeral of my oldest living relative, my great aunt Vivian McDougald. And, and how, how old was Aunt Vivian? Well, let's talk about it. My father was born in 1940. And when my father was born, Aunt Vivian had been out of high school for three years. She was 103 years old. She was born in 1920. And recently, when someone in her family went to collect uh, medication for her at the pharmacy, they asked her for the date, the date of birth of the patient. They said 10, 11, 20. And they went and got like a supervisor said, tell us that date one more time. It's October 11th, 1920. Oh, 1920. We thought you were going to give all of this medicine to a baby and we were going to call Child Protective Services. But uh, yeah, Aunt Vivian was, uh, she was Texas to the bone and she was a great God-loving woman who supported her church. She retired from being the church secretary when she was, she was a little bit lazy on this one. She retired at age 94. So she had a full nine years when she wasn't working. So kind of lazy. Did she spend that time on the golf course mostly or what? Yeah, I guess so. I guess she just lounged okay. around. Lazy. Um, and then that trip coincided with my wife, who very excitedly, she was invited to speak at Texas A&M University to an event planning class. And she's a success story. So they had her come back and talk about her career. And oh my goodness, she was so excited because she was going to do that on a Zoom call. And then when my little day trip to go to family happened, she's like, well, I could go with you and it's right there. And it is, it's all right there in Central Texas. So it was a, it was a whirlwind day. I was awake for 24 hours, but uh, it was a great day. That, that sounds fun. I, uh, I haven't had any travels or adventures this week. I'm sitting here with only two things to report. Number one, we uh, we launched into a big renovation project uh, this what? week of of the. Well, I guess it's not a big renovation, a small renovation project of the laundry room. It was the last remaining vestige of our piece of uh, junk home that we purchased and have been slowly working our way through. I do recall some bare concrete in the laundry room. Yeah. That's been full of surprises as every Renault project is. Um, Sure. And one of those surprises was 
there was a little leaking that happened. I don't think it was related, but I noticed it because I've been going through some plumbing. There was some leaking happening in the basement, and I thought, I'm going to call a plumber, and they're going to just take this little piece of pipe out, and they're going to put a new one in, and the leak will be fixed. I was thinking in my head, you know, plumbers aren't cheap. We've had one on the podcast. Uh, maybe this is a, <laughs> I don't know, it could be a $400 expense. Um <laughs> It is a 10 times that amount expense. Oh my Because goodness. as it turns out, the whole kit and caboodle was done wrong and needs to be replaced. There needs to be some concrete jackhammered. There's oh some underground. So that's always fun. But uh, the joys of homeownership. That, so that, that's one thing. And the only other thing I want to say, just because I want to say it, today... Um, Princeton University fell as the last Ivy that had up to this point not had pro-Hamas demonstrations on campus. And I was thinking about this because we we talk about that, that, that intro you made for the podcast that's probably already played at this point. It says something like, I'm a so-and-so with an Ivy League degree. Ivy League. We might, we might need to remove that, right, at this point. Right. As an employer, if I see an Ivy League degree from 2021, I'm going, there's no chance I'm hiring that person. Right. Um, And you can bet that there's no chance I would ever send one of my children to one of these schools. No, 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 Um, no, no, no. Bill Maher. So you're saying that the the, the Ivy League description for you is quick becoming a negative when it was a positive, at least uh, morally. Yeah. I think it used to yeah. mean at minimum this person was good at the SAT test, and now, it, you know, it might mean uh, this person <laughs> has all manner of mixed up <laughs> thoughts and ideas. Um, yeah, that's there, right. <clears throat> there's a great. Uh, we won't we won't play it here because I'm sure they would copyright us. But there's a great like three minute rant from two weeks ago on Bill Maher's show where he mm-hmm. goes off on the Ivy League and talk and he went to an Ivy League school and talks about what a racket it has become because mm-hmm. of this woke cancer. So anyways, that's kind of sad for me and I just thought given that we we trumpet that as a as a positive thing, maybe we should mention we're not uh we're not happy with what's going on at the Ivy League right now. So, okay, I think we checked the banter box. Let's get into today's stuff. So what happened was we we opened a big old box of worms when we got, and I knew that we would, when we talked about divorce. And we did one episode um, where we went over the biblical statutes around the whole concept. Then we did an episode talking about the financial implications. And now we're just yes. going to talk about this isn't our strong suit. We're not here to be family counselors necessarily, but because we opened the box, I think we have responsibility to give some due diligence to the subject. So I think our format, unless I'm wrong today, is that you're going to kind of set up some scenarios. I'll give uh, my thoughts and then we can, uh, we can knock them around until you're satisfied with my answers and then we'll proceed. Yeah. And, just to tell tell the listener, these are real questions, some that I have been asked by others, and some that I have been sitting at the dinner table and asked my wife, like, well, here's the biblical teaching, and here's a real case. What the heck should we do about this? These are not easy. Um, you can disagree with us on our answers to some of these, and uh, that's okay. We're not We're not here to take our interpretation. Now, there are cases where we might say our interpretation is correct and should be heeded, but there's a lot of cases when we tread into these waters where we're like, we're doing the best we can with what we've got, and you can disagree. So take take everything we say with that in mind um, and and just know that these are things we've been wrestling with in the past couple of weeks as we've talked about this. Um, and like you said, this isn't necessarily our main lane. However, if you're trying to build a multi-generational household, it yes. helps to have multiple generations 
that are not fractured by divorce. And yet we know that there's a lot of divorce that happens and it might not be you. It might be somewhere in the family tree. It might, God forbid, it might someday be your kids that that are dealing with these questions. And so we want you to be well-equipped and prepared. um, And we actually do think it is kind of a a piece of multi-generational prosperity is to have a good understanding of this topic. Totally. You must have a strong ethic around the subject of divorce in your family culture. You should talk about it with your children. You should, that's part of some of what we're going to talk about today. You should be processing with your spouse. Talk about it with your spouse. Talk about it with your children and say, these are our values. This is where we stand. Review the scriptures, et cetera. So I want to, I want, before we get into the scenarios and all of the chewy stuff, there's so much gray area in this, Mark, that I would like to just lay out um, a couple of, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read verses, and you're going to go, well, I thought we did the whole Bible verse thing. But I, I just want to, this is one of those side side effect things of, of a divorce that's in the scripture that we don't have today. So again, we're playing outside the lines of the court that God created for the game of life to be played inside. So I'm just going to, I'll read you a couple of verses. You'll understand why. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 22, which is just a bunch of social rules. It's a very interesting couple of chapters around Deuteronomy 22. It says, if a man is intimate with a woman who is another man's wife, they shall both be put to death. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So, she, so you shall remove the evil from Israel. Okay, so I just want to throw that in to say, in the in the culture of God's word managing a nation, managing a culture, if someone commits adultery, that person ceases to exist. They're not there anymore. So I'll ask you, Mark, if if someone's spouse is dead, are they free to remarry? You're getting at something that I, I just... I'm going to throw the teaser out. A lot of the questions that we're going to deal with today are hard because we're not uh, we're not necessarily taking people out and putting them down when they break certain laws of all sorts, right. not just this one. But yeah, the answer is no. Okay. Um, it's a lot less uh, it's a lot less difficult to deal with because. You know, Bill, who got caught cheating, has been taken outside the city gates and stoned. Now, I'm not saying that's that's the the righteous response today to a guy who uh, who is engaged in adultery, but um, that was what happened in Israel. I, I'm trying yeah, to give so- you great YouTube short material. Like, did you know that these questions aren't hard if we just put everyone to death that breaks God's law? Yes. What you said is exactly right. We we now have to deal with, say, a wife whose husband has cheated on her and still exists, and he still has a relationship with her kids, and he's out there building a new family, and she's kind of going, what do I do about this? And we are left to cobble together some reasonable morality, and we are well outside the lines of anything that's described in Scripture. I'll give you one more verse, uh, same chapter. This is verse 28 of of Deuteronomy 22. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who's not engaged, and he seizes her and he is intimate with her. Now, we went over the definition, some words and definitions. What is the name of that sin, Mark? Fornication. It's fornication. He's intimate with her and they're discovered. Then the man who was intimate with the girl shall give 50 shekels of silver to the girl's father and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He can never divorce her. There it is. He can never divorce her. The one thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a point of is that we live in a time when all of everything's negotiable. Everything's easy. The churches are all fine with it. Our social circles are all fine. Well, I know. I remember once telling a, a minister that I had heard through a really reliable source that his daughter, who I cared about, was sleeping around in college. And I came with a very heavy heart and told this guy, I, 
I, I have to tell you what I've heard. It's just, it's so heavy on my heart and uh, kind of shared. I, I, I hear that your daughter is having sex with people in college. And his response was, I know she's a good girl. She knows what she's doing and she'll, she'll come around. And I was utterly stunned at that response from a minister, a pastor who stands in front and teaches people the Bible. Because the fact that we live so far outside the lines and we don't say, oh, you had sex with a virgin. She's now your wife, period. You'll never divorce her. Well, I don't really care for her. I don't really love her. I just kind of thought she looked great in those pants. I'm sorry. You can't do that. If this is what, if this is the way a society worked, let me guarantee you that fornication wouldn't be very rampant. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be so common that people wouldn't be so quick to uh, act on their urges because the consequences, as I just read, of adultery would be you die. It's the end of your life. Fornication would be you're going to marry her forever and you cannot get a divorce under, it just said it, you, under no circumstances could you divorce this woman. So she has free reign. She is now given a free license to make your life a living hell because the law says you cannot divorce her. So I'm just, I just want to throw out those kind of things to just well and truly say, I'm going to sound definitive in some of my answers to these questions. But the fact is that we are off the territory. Yeah. I just want to say too, that we, we clipped a bunch of sort of zingers out of the episode we did on the scriptures and we had a ton. It's it's interesting because the way YouTube works is it serves those up to people who aren't our normal audience. And so we got to see just how does the general culture react to you reading the Bible? Um, and yes, w- one of the most common reaction, the most common reaction was like, I can't believe you believe in God. Uh, okay. Uh, that's a different, <laughs> yes, that's, true. that's a different YouTube channel. We're not trying to tackle that one here, but yes. the other thing you heard a lot of was, I can't believe that you think that this only women should have the penalties here. Um, and both scriptures you just read absolutely refute that and say, A, the penalties for adultery apply to both genders equally. And B, yeah. in that case where let's just say two people make a mistake, the guy is told you don't have the option of bipping out on your responsibility. You will honor it for the rest of your life. Or we'll go on to step two and you'll find yourself in that, that passage about what happens when you become adulterous. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting and it certainly does not <laughs> say that women are the, the sole recipients of rules when it comes to this stuff. That's it's wonderful. God's so good. It's throughout the scriptures. All right. Should we get into, I'm, I'm going to come at you with some, with some spice and try to to pose these questions as they first occurred to me or were posed to me. Okay. Okay. So here's the first one, Steve, you said, you said in, in that first episode that God doesn't see the first marriage covenant as dissolved just because one person, you know, legally divorced another and engaged in fornication and or there was adultery. Um, You also said, I'm not saying that you have to divorce your new spouse if you're remarried. We we sort of stuck our toe into those waters on that first episode. How can you square these two things? If God sees, you know, if if I'm in that spot and God sees my first marriage as still in force, should I divorce my spouse if I'm remarried? Does it change anything? If I say have kids with a new spouse, like, what am I supposed to do? Okay. As I see it, you have, you have effectively promised yourself 100% to two different people. That seems mathematically untenable to me. As I laid out, it seems clear to me that um, God doesn't dissolve a covenant. So as I see it, God calls your situation adultery. And it might be in the minority of all Christians, but that's what I see. And I don't hate you for that, by the way. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner too. What we need to do is we need to come to an agreement with what God says about our, about our situation. What does he say about me? What does he say about my thoughts? 
What does he say about the way that I'm running my family? What does he say about my money? Um, not what does the government say, or even, uh, I, I hate to be able to say this, but I certainly can, not even what does my church approve or not, but what does God say about my situation? So for me, the best solution I can come up with in that is I want people to agree with God and simply say, God, you say that this is adultery and that there's, there is a violation against the first covenant, and that being the case, this second covenant that I'm living in right now with my second wife, um, there's something about it that's messy. I mean, that's the best I can say. I can't say you're living in sin every day. I mean, <laughs> it just feels like a stretch to me. I don't know. I don't know what to do about that situation. All I would say is, if you if you want to talk to other people about your sin, uh, you're going to have to call it what God calls it. So if God calls it adultery, let's just confess, God, you say this is adultery, and we confess, we're in agreement with you, and we confess and repent of adultery. It's, it's in our family line. Now, I, I, can't tell, I can't say any of that without also saying very quickly right after it, we, we, want, we don't want adultery in our family. We don't, we don't want our children to engage in adultery, our grandchildren. We don't want there to be multiple divorces. And so you have to, this is true of anybody, you should educate your children and tell on yourself with regard to your own sin. You should tell them about the time when you were a kid and you stole a pencil from the school and your conscience weighed on you in bed that night. And you, I realized what I did was wrong. And, and I just had to confess and I confessed it and the Lord forgave me. We have to tell that story to our children on ourselves. It can't be out there. You have to tell these stories on yourself to your kids. And I would just say that this is one of those stories. You, it has to be a family story. We just want to agree with God about what he calls things. So I'll give you some more examples. God, I agree with you. I live in fear. I haven't called it that. I've called it worry. Well, you know, I'm a worrier, but I live in fear and I want to call it what God calls it. It's sin. God, I agree with you. My overbusy life is based in fear, and I have this stressed out life. Stress is another name for fear, and I've been trying to hide and act like it was, it was morally neutral. It's not neutral. It opposes you. It's sin. So I want to just agree. Um, I thought of a really good an, an, uh, parallel to this situation, which is what, the guy who finds too much identity in his work. And he says, God, I realize I, I have found identity. When I meet somebody, the, I want them to know what I do. It's so important to me. They know what I do. And, what, and I want to repent of trying to find too much identity in my work. Now, would we say that that guy needs to quit his job? No. I just want him to realize there's sin here and call it what it is and walk out of it. So I would I I feel like that's a good parallel to somebody who goes you know I didn't want to do most people who and they're in the world of divorce and remarriage they just don't want to ask any questions they don't want to know what God says about it because they just think it's going to be ugly and mean or they do this really lazy thing or they just put their push their Bible away from them and go God loves me He forgives me whatever it is without going well what does He actually say about your situation I say. And I see he calls it adultery. So I say, confess it, repent of it, and, and say that's not going to be the story of our family line. So as you're teaching your kids, this is 100% unacceptable for the future of our family and that God hates it. You can you throw that in from Malachi. And the kid might say, so God hates what you did? Yes, son, God hates what I did. And the good news is that he forgives me. And I just don't want it for you. It's not part of God's plan. So I want us to agree about what God says. The the thing you said to me, because this is one that I asked you during the week when we were kind of talking about this, that I thought was helpful is that you're actually capable of entering into multiple covenants that yeah. might act, that might be conflicting. Um, yes. I think that the, the curiosity I have that still I feel like we haven't given a good answer to is would the remarried person who let's say they just got tired of spouse number one and found a new spouse are they engaged in ongoing 
sin or did they sin? And now, because that's the question I think I'm asking if I found myself in that spot is like, is every day that I wake up and continue in this covenant sin? Uh, If so, how can I say that I turned away from it? I would think that the cutting of the covenant was the sin. So the creation of the second covenant, I would say Ah. that was a sin. And you, you are living in the consequences of that sin. Got it. So I'll, okay. I'll tell you, you know, you know, personal anecdotes is that I, I have friends who they were divorced against their will. The spouse has gotten remarried. They are left bereft. They waited and had no sort of ambitions to, I'm going to satiate my pain with another person, but somebody came along, whether it was another divorced person or a widow, and they thought, I, I think I'm going to marry this person. And my reaction to those people, this has happened to me several times in my life now, where I say to them, this is going to sound so weird. I don't know what else to say to you, but I can't cheerlead this wedding because I don't know what to do about it morally. And I can tell you that once you're married, I'm I'm going to support you in your marriage. And if that sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, please forgive me. I don't know what else to do. Um, again, we're off the page. As as poor an answer as that is, I, I'm I'm earnest in telling it, and my friends have given me grace for that and say, well, that makes sense. We're going to move on to an easy one now. Okay. Um, I got this one on our circle channel and um, I, it's one that I've been discussing also with folks this week. Cause uh, in the, in the first episode, actually I think it, last week as well, I made the comment that it's wise and often very necessary to put significant distance between yourself and an abusive spouse. Yeah. Um, so the question is, is, does that mean I can divorce them if they physically hurt me? Um, and then all the follow-ups to this. So what if they're an emotional abuser? What if they hurt my children or are unsafe to be around the kids in some way? Um, am I supposed to just stay legally married but plan on permanent separation? Um, do I have to talk to them every year and so that we can file a tax return together, even though they tried to kill me with a baseball bat. Um, you know, what do I do? Thank you for this softball. I can start. Let's start with the simple stuff. Nowhere in the scripture does it even insinuate, not even a little, that physical abuse is grounds for divorce. So I'll just sit here and let the comments that we're woman haters, I'll let those comments fly in. But that's a fact. The Bible doesn't say that. Now, when you have said, Mark, that that getting away from a physical abuser is recommended, I couldn't agree more. Get away. Get away if it's happening to you, and get away with the kids if it's happening to the kids. You must protect the children. And I really believe that 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 that's an order that God has put into place, that a woman, that her role is is to have the eye on the kids when it comes to the physically stronger male. So she's got an eye on those kids. And if she has to remove herself and them to keep them safe, I think that she should. Paul seemed to think that separation um, was an extremely reasonable route for people to go. So I, I really wish that separation was m- more normal in the church, and I wish that divorce was super abnormal in the church. Um, but we don't, we, don't, we don't do that because we don't have a long... If you get separated, there's something in you that has a long view towards it working, towards reconciliation. So, um, you know, the, obviously what we want is you want dad to get into a men's healthy sexuality group or some kind of counseling or accountability group somewhere to get to the bottom of his sin and get real repentance and then start putting things back together in a healthy way. Um, I know that what you're describing, Mark is we're no, we're talking about like 
broken slash crazy people. This it's not going to get better. Um, we've, we've given all the time that we can and, and, uh, we might address more of that later on. Um, extended separation, uh, I think is an option. Like, I think that living in such a way that we, what we consider in 2023, what we consider divorced life, I think that's an option living a living separately, but still going like, I'm, I'm in this, I'm in a covenant and I, I can't get out of the covenant. So you, you've got a crazy person who's doing crazy things and doing crazy things with money and being irrational and unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to show up or how they're going to show up. You don't know if they're going to show up stoned or if they're going to show up to work or not. I mean, I have, we all have families and every family is dysfunctional. Uh, these people are in my family. I, I know uh, this kind of scenario. And as painful as that is, and as sad as it is, and as much suffering as there is, and as much hand-wringing as there is, like, how do we work out our lives? Um, could we could we legally uh, break our, could we break our marriage legally before the government so that, as you say, tax returns are separate and our and our finances are separate. I think that's an all an option to do, to walk through these like technicalities, but before God to go, I'm still committed to this person. Part of our worship before the Lord is to honor the covenants that we're in, even at pain to ourselves. That's exactly what uh, Psalm says about a righteous man, that he follows through on his commitments, even to his pain. And we're talking, and I know, I know that I'm talking about, I'm not talking about hurt my thumb. I'm talking about decades of the deepest kind of pain. I understand that. There is not a, uh, an eject button for, for abuse. It's just not there. I'm not a big fan of caveating much on this episode, but I am going to chime in here. And I'm going to say, there's nothing about what we're saying that negates Romans 13 and the fact that God has given the power of the sword to local government. And in most of these cases, when there's abuse, whether it's of you, of of your kids, then laws have been broken. And it's not just okay, it's good and righteous for you to allow the authorities to come in and wield the sword. Um, you know, they will come to your house with guns and take away somebody who is hurting you or others. Um, yes. You should do that. And we also know that, you know, people who get abused, they're at high risk physically uh, in the future. Uh, abusers yes. tend to come back and do harm. And so what I would recommend is... Um, Maybe if you're listening to this and there's no abuse anywhere around you, but you're part of a local church, you should have your antenna up for are there people in our congregation who we need to be especially watchful over? Uh, are there single women who maybe this is a part of their story that we need to be saying, do you need anything from us as uh, you know healthy men, leaders of families? Um, because that's a, that's a role that I think we uh, as guys who are not in unhealthy situations can serve. I mean, that is part of looking after orphans and widows. Uh, you know, they may not be orphaned or widowed, but they are certainly abandoned uh, in these yes. cases. And they may here, even here. be in physical danger. So um, there's a role for healthy men in churches um, or in your neighborhood or whatever. Like there's an opportunity for the gospel to go forward just by going and being a protector, um, not just of the children and wife you have, but of other people that bump into you. This is a place where I think that's especially true. 100%. Let's get to another one that I've heard a lot. Um, my spouse is addicted to porn, and lots of people oh. have told me that this is the equivalent to adultery, so I'm free to divorce them. What do you say to this? Stephen is is leaning back in his chair and holding his head. How much time do we have left? Um, Be judicious. I'm going to attack the question first. Because, and the reason I'm going to take time on this is because I know that a lot of eyebrows just went up when you asked that question. Um, and so I know that it merits attention. So I'm, I'd like to say a couple of things. One, 
the Bible does not know anything about the word addiction. That word is not in the Bible. Watch how hard people who are called addicts fight for the right to call themselves addicts. I just saw a clip of Matthew Perry, and he was getting very riled up about this statement that when I drink one beer, I cannot stop after that. And he really, that really was important to him that somebody uh, verify that for him. Um, that's not Christian language. It, the, the whole culture of addiction is an escape hatch for us to deny responsibility regarding our sin. So you decide, and you continue to decide. I could say this to Matthew Perry. You decided, and you continue to decide, and you have agency. So that's first. I, I, want, I would like to say this to every single guy who has stamped himself with, well, I guess I'm just addicted to porn. Wah, wah. Well, I guess it's over now, and uh, I'm addicted to porn, so I'll be doing that. What's up? That's what you're saying, is I'll be doing that. The Bible would describe a pattern of sin where sin becomes automatic or even part of our identity as besetting sin. It's a besetting sin. And so the way that looks like is a, a Christian keeps falling into the same sin, and after some time he gets so used to it that he loses a sense of its seriousness before God. And he lo no longer feels guilty, maybe, after committing it. He becomes tired of resisting it. He begins to excuse it as his own personal weakness. This is my vice. This is, you ever heard that kind of language? This is my vice. Well, this is my shortcoming. We all have our we all have our vices, and that's mine. You know, I got to do wine at night, and maybe I have maybe I have one too many, but it's my little thing. Such sugarcoating of sin is the easiest way to give the devil a grip in your life by which he can draw you further and further away from the Lord. I'll throw a couple of verses at you. Hebrews 12.1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience and endurance the race that is set before us. Uh, Romans 6, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Let, so therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not, <clears throat> do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. If you're a guy who, who has observed of yourself that feelings of guilt have decreased for you because of your regular and continual and long-term pornography usage, I just want you to know you have massive danger signs and red lights on the dashboard of your life. The feeling of uh, something is very wrong happening here, that's a gift from God. Those feelings of guilt and shame, they're a gift from God. And so when you see those decreasing, uh, I would I would like you to be very worried. Um, Psalm sixty six eighteen says, "If I had any regard for iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my cry." Yikes! Yikes! And Romans thirteen fourteen tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. There are more. There are more guys who have the besetting sin of pornography. Then there are marriages that are that feel that they're at risk because of pornography, because so many of those sins are hidden. And so many times the wife, she might know that something's there, but she doesn't know the degree to which. So that's why I'm taking the time to talk about it a little bit, because I'd like to out, out that language um, and say it's sin. It's sin. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, pornography, pornography versus physical adultery. I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote the verse that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that I think people are thinking of when they say that. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. 
So in that sermon, Jesus raises the bar on what constitutes sin, because the concept of thought life was a new one for all of his hearers. Thought life? God's looking in my mind at what I'm thinking of? Yes, he is. Now, that was the point of doing that, that if anybody thought, well, I'm gossiping in my mind, I'm judging in my mind, but I'm not doing anything about it. Jesus is going, yeah, you're a sinner. What? And I think when we stand before God, we're going to find out that we're, we were all worse sinners than we thought that we were because we just, we, just didn't, we just didn't know how deep God goes, that he evaluates the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Oh, shoot. So even the way that I address the day, I could be in sin because I'm just so selfish, you know. That was the point of Jesus doing that. However, once Jesus did that sermon, there did now there did not then become a death penalty for lust. Well, you we've determined that you lusted after that girl, and it was as if you had committed adultery. Um, thought life and actual adultery are very different sins. They're both sins, but they're very different. Um, for one, uh, thought sins don't involve another human being. There's not a relationship created nor severed. You, you have done violence to the covenant, to borrow that language from Malachi, but you haven't slept with another man's wife. That hasn't happened. Um, they're not adultery. So that, that's the short answer. Jesus says, you've committed these things in your hand. Yeah, because you went there in your mind. But for instance, there's no, there's no death penalty for daydreaming about robbing banks. Um, I've done that before thought, how could, how, how could I rob this bank? Because that's an interesting thought puzzle. Well, that robbing the bank would be a sin. And I would say the lustful thought of the fantasy and going to that place, it's also a sin. Don't be, don't be spending your time thinking about what you do when you sinned. That's my short answer there. They're not, it's not adultery. It's not grounds for divorce. The best remedy for this sort of thing is a rough, tough crew of God-fearing men and a ruthless desire to make no provision for the flesh. Uh, if you've got a pornography problem that you cannot get your head, it, it's a, it feels like a besetting sin. I feel like I have no power, but oh, I really want to be free. <laughs> We've seen a lot of guys do that thing. I really want to be free. I, I really do. That's easy. Let's get the internet out of your house and get rid of your smartphone. Oh, well, I think I can handle those two things. Wait, you said you don't have any control over pornography. Oh, I really do. And I really want to be free. Okay, get rid of the internet from your house, but I'd lose my cable. Uh-huh. And get rid of the smartphone. But what would I do without maps? I mean, these are people that don't want to be free from sin. So you need a rough, tough group of dudes around him to rough him up a little bit and to, to have him make no... Um, no allowance for the flesh. And I have to say before I finish on this topic, for the ladies who feel, look, I know that a lot of women have suffered, but I, I know, I don't know a couple of stories around this. I know dozens of stories around this. And a very common story, it might not be you listening, but I'm telling you it is, it's a real story, is the woman who gets so offended and put out I know it's hurtful, by the way. I know that pornography is hurtful. I know it's sin. I know it is a sin to it's against you. And I and but what happens is that Christian women, there's something in Christian culture that they get to build a grudge. They get to declare a righteousness here, and they're allowed in Christian culture to now start hating their husbands for it. You're out of bounds when you do that. And I would just remind you before I leave the topic, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? No, I tell you, but 70 times, seven times. And, and there's questions about what the math is in that verse. It, it could be a lot more than that. Um, but I have to say that we have to walk in forgiveness with one another. Ma'am, I'm sorry that your husband has this problem. You're married to a sinner. He is also married to a sinner. I am married to a sinner. My wife is married to a sinner. We have to walk forward in forgiveness. That's part of the deal. That's part of why there's a covenant that you can't get out of because we're supposed to walk forward in forgiveness. Long answer to your question, but I thought it needed it. Yeah, I think you hit it all. Um 
So I'm just going to move on to the next one because okay. I'll rubber stamp and say I agree with everything you said. Okay. Um, here's one that I have experienced in the past year, and I'm sure you have too. My friend just announced that he and his wife are amicably divorcing. What are my practical responsibilities as a friend to this professing believer? Well, I have a real problem with the word amicably, as you might imagine. Okay, so let's talk about uh, divorce again. Let's just remind ourselves God hates it. So a, a seething, smoldering hate is God's attitude toward it. Uh, I aim to be like God. So you and I should have a seething, smoldering hatred at the concept of divorce getting its filthy hooks into the marriages that constitute our communities around us. And if somebody is, you know what, we talked it over. We weren't the right ones for each other. It's just better if we go our separate ways and we're going to shake hands and split everything 50-50. Now we are, we are in the territory of you don't understand what divorce is. You don't understand the passages that we, the Abraham's wallet people, have all patiently walked through up to this point. And you also don't understand what sin in the camp means. And that one marriage falling, and, and in a way, in a way, it's more evil that it would be pleasant for everybody. Well, we want it to be do the least damage. Let's, we're all friends here. We're all adults. Let's go. And it's, it's, it's not a big problem, is it? No, a murder has been committed, a murder against a covenant. That's what we're talking about here. And for, for my sake, um, and it's easy for me to say this because we're talking in theoretical for me, I quickly would go to, we're in a Matthew 18 situation, and I would confront my friend, the male, and I would say, what you're doing is evil, and I'm, this is sin, and God hates it. And if he goes, man, why don't you get out of my face? I say, I'll be back with that other good friend of ours, and we're going to confront you together, and then we're going to walk through the process that ends up saying, because I I know how these things go, with this guy eventually going, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't want to be married to this woman anymore. Get out of my face. Um, and we say, you're no longer part of the church. And I think that if you go back, so I hope nobody is listening to this episode as an intro to this topic with us. Please ah. rewind, go to the first divorce episode. But we talked, you talked about the church in Nashville that announced to the whole church uh, that there was somebody that was intending to do this. Uh, and yes. the, the, they were in step three of Matthew 18. Um, yes. You talked about, and I've been subject to this request. Can you help me move my stuff? Because I'm moving out on my wife. Um, the answer to those things, I think, is pretty pretty straightforward. Like we're not going to have anything to do with it. There is the person who comes to you as maybe they were this person. Maybe they even got got the boot from Christian community, um, but they eventually came around to the point of repentance. And that person, I would say, now we're going to welcome you back in, restore you. If there's ways to to repair and restore this marriage, great. But even if there's not. Um, then we, we aren't saying you've, you've soiled yourself for eternity and I guess find a new hobby because Christianity is no longer going to work for you. So, um, I think that's probably straightforward, but repentance is the tonic for this ailment. There you go. Speaking of the role of the church in this stuff, my church is remarrying divorced people right and left. Does that mean? (laughs) Yeah. Does that mean I'm at a church that doesn't honor God's word and is is full of heretics? What should I do? I can answer this pretty quickly. First, I want to remind everybody, I said this in the very first episode, and if I didn't say it in the second, I'll say it again here. There is room for some interpretation, difference of interpretation around what I said about the one the one verse that says, except for marital unfaithfulness. There are questions about what that, that specific phrase means. Now, some people have built a very big theological loophole out of that one phrase. While I can say that it violates God's law that, that we got in, in the beginning, the Torah, 
it, it that it violates God's heart. And that uh, what I mean when I say God's heart is he wants every covenant to be permanent and he would never do it. He, he doesn't break covenant. That's a very important uh, point. And it also uh, um, violates Paul's writing around the subject. I can't say that it's definitively wrong. So I, I, I have to say that, that there's, there can be a difference of um, a, a theological interpretation. So what I would say to you, anybody who's listening to this and goes, well, how can I know whether my church is faithful? Ask the leaders of your church about the subject of divorce and remarriage. And if they appeal to God's word, and they say, we think that Matthew 5.19 means this and this. We think that Matthew 19 means this and this. That is totally fine. But if you go to your church and you ask, what's the deal about divorce and remarriage? And they say, well, there are just so many people in that category these days. I mean, how can we turn them away? Then you get out because you don't have a church that's following God's word. What you have is a church that is following popular opinion, and they will violate God's word on gender issues, sexuality issues, and theological issues. You're not safe there. The one thing I want to tack on is we we were part of a church here for a long time and then left due to gross uh heresies and um <laughs> so we were in this stage uh for a little while of sniffing around different churches and one of the churches that we spent some significant time at we noticed there is a lot of people at this church who are young and they're getting divorced and mm. i would just take note of that when you're in a church yeah. community i'm not saying if divorce starts to happen in your church, run away. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there are spiritual implications. You know, our struggle is not against um, flesh. And there there are spiritual implications for noticing that a particular attack and sin is coming against a community of people. And this is one that I see happening where people start to, the dominoes start to fall. I tell people who are, in difficult seasons of marriage, don't you dare go hang out with your divorced friends right now because that's not going to be uh, helpful to you uh, in what you're going through. And similarly, I think if you're in a church where the 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 really really bad combination is people starting to get divorced and a church that's pretty soft on this and not hitting it head on. That's bad news bears, and frankly, I don't care how great your marriage is. You should be thinking this either resolves quickly, or we're not going to hang around this community because it's it's uh, poison. The well has been poisoned. Great. Couple more quick ones. <laughs> My parents are divorced. We want to honor them in the way that we talk about their situation with our kids, and we also want to hold the line in how we teach our kids about divorce and remarriage. What do we do, especially? when it comes to maybe younger kids. Yeah. And how do we talk about grandma and grandpa? Uh, great question. Such a common issue. I have a strong recommendation here. The first thing that you should do with your kids, and I mean little kids, you can teach this at three, four, five years old. Teach covenant to your children. Teach the concept of covenant. Tell them that mommy and daddy are in a covenant with one another. That means we'll never, ever, ever leave each other because we have promised our very lives to each other. This is how we understand, children, what our relationship with God is like because He is in a covenant with our family. He has said that He will always love us, that His word will always be true. He has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You can depend on these things. That's a relationship that never goes away. You got it, kids? That's a covenant. We even say, I know, I know I'm off the pages of the Bible here because the Bible does not say this, but if I understand a covenant to be a permanent and unchanging relationship, we tell our kids that we are in covenant with them. We'll always be their parents. They'll always be our children. We'll always love them. That can never change. It cannot possibly change no matter what they do. <clears throat> it's so important that a child builds a worldview around those dependable ideas of covenant. So that's what that's my number one recommendation is you teach covenant as a magic word in your house. It is a precious, holy word. And everybody understands what a covenant is. 
Then you teach the idea as they're aging and they realize that they're sinners. This should happen by age four or five, that they realize that they're sinners. They do things that are wrong. Then you're teaching them grace and mercy and forgiveness. They have to understand if you say, I told you not to lie, you lied. Didn't you? Yes, I did. And was that wrong? It was wrong. I forgive you. And I'm going to pray for you right now. And then when it's over, you say, and it's as if you never lied and everything is okay between us because you told the truth that you had sinned because you confessed it and we agree that it's sin and now it goes away. So now the child has a concept of covenant. They have a concept of grace and forgiveness. Now is when I would introduce, and I, and honestly, there are some things that I wait would wait very long in child. I can't stand the modern idea of parenting, which is they're going to run into it someday. That's why we take our five-year-old to the rated R movies. It's not real people getting their heads blown off. They understand that. No, they don't. That's that's malpractice as, as a parent. There are things that should be waited on to, to describe to a child. And maybe by age seven, eight, nine, as they're just, I know friends who are in this situation right now who are going, the, the kids are going, why are, what's the deal with grandma and grandpa? Why, don't, why aren't they at the same place at the same time? Are they, are they in covenant? And there would be a period of time in their life when I would say to them, yes, they did make a covenant. I would say that to a child. I just want that in their mind. Yes, they did make a covenant. Okay, so that's how marriages work. As their brains are working. Now, I'm I'm imagining the the simple, wonderful scenario that they're both single and living in uh, separate places. So go with me on this scenario. And then at some point, they're going, why don't they live in the same place? And you say, they sinned. The covenant, they decided that they would break the covenant. But you, but you can't break a covenant. I know that's how God feels, but people break covenants. And God doesn't want it. And God, it's, it's against God. He, he, he hates it. But that's what happened. And we have to forgive grandma and grandpa for breaking that covenant. But you know what? We do things toward them that they have to forgive us for too. And and you do things that I have to forgive you for. And I'm sure you get mad at me sometimes. You got to forgive me. We all have to forgive each other. And their sin was that they broke that covenant. And if if a child can understand those things, and we're, we're supposed to teach children precept upon precept. This is how you make a disciple. You build precept upon precept. That means you you create a foundational thing. Then later on, you can get into nuances and you can get into exceptions, et cetera. But we've got to create the the perceptions. I mean, the the lay the foundations for people. Maybe the most important work you can do, especially early on, is coming from a place of forgiveness for yourself, uh, because you will be tempted. When you let's say that your parents got divorced, I don't know, maybe they got divorced when you were two or maybe you were 30, but you will be tempted um, to use that as a way to kind of exert uh, yourself over them and say, well, I can I can tell these kids that I'm doing it better than you did. Uh, that's bad news bears. It's dishonoring. I, I would say that... Um, you certainly can say this is how we do marriage and build a ridiculously high view of marriage and covenant in their minds. But uh, you have to be in a place where you've actually walked the path of forgiveness, which you can do forgiveness regardless of the response of the contra party to forgiveness. Your parents, they may be the most loving and like, man, we are sorry for the way we hurt you in this. And then maybe forgiveness is a little easier road to walk. They may say, F you, I don't care anything about how you feel about this. It doesn't matter. You can still walk down that road uh, of forgiveness. And to me, you are in no place to talk to your kids about grandma and grandpa uh, until you have walked that that path. So I don't care. Maybe your kids are 15 and you've been doing this for a long time and you hear this and you go, crap, I've been talking to them like, yeah, grandpa and grandma really suck. Um, (laughs) Don't do that. And if you have, just stop and do the same thing that we've been talking about for all this divorce stuff and repent, turn around, do things differently and walk 
towards forgiveness for your parents and then start bringing your kids into that. Um, and uh, I think that's just a critical step that if you miss it, you will not do well on this category. I have one last one and we can wrap up here. It's uh, let's say I'm a widower, Stephen, okay. and I'm 45 years old or you could replace this with any single person who hasn't been through divorce that's kind of older. Um, But it seems like all the single believers I meet are divorced. Would you say that they're all off limits to me? Yes, they are off limits to you. All right. Well, next week we will be back (laughs) with tax tips. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I thought, I think we have demonstrated that this, whole milieu is messy you uh don't have to agree with all of my hot takes they are one pastor's opinion based on scripture if you can uh, come against my hot takes with your scripture based hot takes um that's totally fine i've said it before we're happy to debate with people who for whom the bible is the authority I said at the beginning of this episode, we have to we have to wade into these waters because we opened up the can. Um, we want to do one more episode on divorce, um, and it's simply how to divorce-proof your your marriage, how to not get divorced. Um, so we're going to be talking about that next time, and uh, we love you. I hope nobody feels attacked. Um, I'm just trying to faithfully put forth God's word. And whatever situation you're in, we really are on the, on your side. We're on the side of your family as well. <laughs>